The text I've chosen for the sermon this morning is Genesis 2, verse 24. We'll read that verse again. Genesis 2, 24. And there the Word of God says the following, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we live today in a time of cultural and, and then especially moral confusion, a time when people aren't sure what they believe and stand for anymore and how they ought to live, how how they should live with one another. Time when they don't know which norms and values are good and right anymore. For instance, what is a family? Some adults who happen to live together and maybe some kids and does it make any difference whether those adults are married? And today, in our country, homosexual marriage has been accepted. And then you wonder also about polygamy. What, what would be wrong with polygamy then? Congregation, I propose that the confusion about what should and should not be acceptable as far as relationships is concerned has to do with what we believe about the origin of all things and who we are as people as a result of that. Are we just animals who happened to become what we are by a process of evolution or so? And are our norms and values then based on a combination of instinct and evolving social codes or something like that? Or is there a God who made us? And did he institute norms and values? Did he institute marriage? as the union of one man and one woman. Of course, as Bible-believing Christians, we say yes to the last thing I mentioned there. God made us. He instituted norms. He instituted marriage. But it's not always easy to keep saying yes today because we're embedded in a society and in a culture that generally doesn't want to accept God's word as the truth about how we should live. But that's why we have to keep busy with that word and with what it says. 
Because then if we're busy with that constantly, then we'll constantly also be confirmed and reconfirmed about the truth of this word. The more you're busy with the Bible, the more you see it is the truth. And then you also see God's, the truth about God's involvement with who we are and what we do in family and in other situations. And I preached to you the text this morning with this theme then, God's institution of marriage. We pay attention to three things. First, the parties in marriage. Secondly, the character of marriage. And thirdly, the freedom to marry. So first of all, the parties in marriage. We read in Matthew 19, congregation, how the Savior Jesus Christ discusses marriage with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, legalists that they were, they tested Jesus on a hot issue at the time, namely divorce. You see, there were two schools of interpretation among the teachers of the law of Moses in those days, each with a different interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses wrote about a man giving his wife a certificate of divorce if he finds something indecent about her, something cursed in her. One school interpreted that to be adultery only, whereas the other school interpreted it to include a number of less serious things. For instance, if she didn't take care of the household properly, etc., etc. And the Pharisees, you see, they wanted to draw Jesus into their legalistic controversy to see if they could maybe catch him in a matter of law. But Jesus refuses to get caught up in their legalistic type arguments. Jesus points back to the beginning. Beautiful approach, good approach. When there's an argument between children about a toy or something like that, then the parents would, would say, let's go back to where this started. Well, Jesus brings the parties back to where it all started. Genesis 1 and 2. After reminding the hearers that in the beginning the Creator made them male and female, the Lord Jesus points to our text about marriage. God the Creator brought the man and woman together and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the Lord Jesus points out the great weakness of the Pharisees when he adds to that yet too, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. See, the, the Pharisees had got caught up in these discussions about all kinds of hypothetical situations for which they wanted to make all kinds of rules about when divorce is legal and when it's not legal. 
But the Lord, by bringing those texts from Genesis into the picture, shows what the most important thing to keep in mind is when it comes to discussion about marriage and divorce. We have to remember that God instituted marriage, made man and woman and instituted marriage. God is involved here. He created them, male and female, he made their relationship as man and wife. He brought the man and the woman together in the beginning and instituted marriage. In other words, marriage doesn't just involve two people. It involves three beings, man, wife, and God. And if you leave him out of the picture, you're going to forget the most important party in marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate, Jesus says. You see, marriage isn't just about what people like and want and do. God is part of this too. And you see that in Genesis. God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them, it says, Genesis 1, 27. And then he also gave the man and the woman the task to be fruitful and to fill and subdue the earth. They received dominion over creation to work it to God's glory. And therefore, they also needed to be fruitful, have children, and raise those children so they would know God and serve and glorify Him in all His creation too. In Genesis 2, God let Adam realize that he needed a helper for his task on earth, a partner with whom he could work at that filling and subduing the earth to God's glory. And God formed such a partner out of Adam's rib. A woman whom Adam later called Eve, mother of all living. It says in Genesis 2, verse 22, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken out of the man, taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And there you have the key to understanding what marriage is, congregation. A man and woman choose each other as partner, and they become one for life. But it's God who is at work in and through it all, through them. He brings them together in marriage, he lets their lives intersect. That's what we need to think about first and foremost when we're discussing marriage. That's what we need to think about in the first place in our own marriages or when we're going out with someone and we're looking for a marriage partner. Marriage is not just a matter of people thinking, choosing, acting, even in our society in general people loving, but it is God who is at work here bringing men and women together in marriage. And so there are three parties involved in every marriage. A man, a woman, and God. 
whether they realize that or not, God, too, he instituted it. Again, that's something we have to keep in mind in our own marriages, married brothers and sisters. Also, when there are difficulties in our marriages or when the spark is out of the relationship and there's tension. And then you wonder why the communication has broken down and whether you should have married that, that person at all. Maybe I married the wrong one. Well, at times like that, you have to think back to the day you were married. Most likely the minister used the form we have in the book of praise or similar. The section of Genesis 2, in which we find our text would have been quoted. And it says after that, right after that, we therefore believe that the Lord God today gives husband and wife to one another. And since they are united by his hand, nothing shall separate them in this life. There you have the norm. That's what you confessed when you were married. You didn't choose each other just out of yourselves. God was involved in it all. God brought you together, gave you to each other, and he's the third party in your marriage, and he promised to help you even. But even if you accept that, there can still maybe be some yeah buts. Yeah, I accept all that, but the love we had when we started out seems to have died. We hardly communicate anymore. We live alongside each other. Well, over against that, I would also like to place a yeah, but. Yeah, but love is not just a feeling. In the first place, love is an act of the will. And therefore, love is work, hard work. Love, shown in Scripture, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Christ so loved us that he gave himself up for us. Love is sacrifice. Love is doing things for the other person. That's what the Bible so clearly shows when it talks about love. For instance, 1 Corinthians 13, that wonderful poem about love. Love is an attitude you choose. Love is something you will to do. And if you both work at it from that angle, then the feeling will follow too. So you need to choose to think and act in love. And love as God, the other partner in that relationship, also showed you. And if you follow him, you love him, then the feeling of love for one another will also come back, will grow. 
But congregation, what about separation and divorce? If there's continuing in sexual immorality, as it says, as Jesus mentioned, or someone forsakes the other partner, abandonment. The, the Lord Jesus spoke of divorce where there's sexual immorality and the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 spoke about abandonment by an unbelieving partner. Did God originally bring those partners together too? Yes, he did. He surely did. But there is also responsibility then on the part of the husband and the wife. God does his part. He brings together. And he promises to help when called on. God isn't the problem. The problem lies with the one or the other or both parties in the marriage. Their hardness of heart. We have a big responsibility and task then, once we're married. God brings people together in marriage, but he doesn't do that as if we're stocks and blocks, as if he's simply nailing a couple of blocks of wood together. No, people remain responsible for their choices, and we're all sinners. So there, there can be situation where there is sexual immorality or abandonment when couples also sadly go the way of divorce. But always it's because of the hardness of heart. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, the hardness of heart. So, Jesus says, Matthew 19, there can be cases where God accepts that man separates what he has joined by his hand. Those cases are clearly exceptions because of the hardness of hearts. God's will is that what he has joined by his hand not be separated by man in this life. For if it is, then it is hardness. That can mean a hard struggle for a couple to keep that in mind. It's so taken up in them, themselves and their own hurt. But they can struggle in the trust that the same hand that brought them together will also help them stay together as long as they continue to pray and work in faith. God is there too. God is part of that to help them even when they least expect it, as the marriage form says. Even when there has been sexual immorality, or when there has been abandonment for a time, God can work reconciliation as long as the other party in a marriage turn to him then too, that both parties in a marriage turn to him. Give up that hardness of their hearts. I realize it's not going to answer all the questions for every situation, but we can't make rules for every situation like the Pharisees wanted to do. The important thing is we need to see that when husband and wife are joined in marriage, then it is by God's hand. God is involved as party in that marriage too. He brings together. 
He promises to help, to keep together. In fact, he is the most important party in the marriage. In a marriage of two people born in sin. So let's keep that in mind, congregation, as, as partners deal with each other in marriage. Or when young people seek marriage. Or when we try to help in marriage. God is central here. We come to the second point, the character of marriage. Our text congregation actually says quite a bit about the character of marriage. Let's pay attention to a few of the characteristics of marriage as instituted by God mentioned here. In the first place, marriage is official. Official character. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And you see in the background here, a vow. Vow. Different customs in different places when it comes to making marriage vows. But in every place and time, marriage is an official public event in which a promise, a vow, is made. For Christians, something that's done publicly before God and his church. The institution of marriage in the beginning means that we don't just move in with each other. It happens today quite a bit. It needs to be a wedding ceremony in which the marriage is sealed before God and before witnesses with vows. The text shows God wants a public display of commitment to each other before there is the enjoyment of being together. Also intimacy. Second characteristic of marriage is that it's for life. According to the text, it's permanent. It says in the text, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The older versions had here that a man would cleave to his wife, and we could add the wife to her husband, because it works two ways. This permanence flows out of the official character of marriage. Husband and wife promise to be true and faithful to each other for as long as they both shall live, till death do us part. They're joined. They cleave to each other, promise not to let someone or something come between them. Great lovers are not people who figure they can be also intimately involved with somebody else other than their marriage partner. No, a truly great lover is someone who maintains love and devotion to the one person God has given him or her. If you work at cleaving to the person you married, that grows and that becomes deeper and more beautiful all the time. But again, cleaving 
being joined takes work and forgiveness. Another characteristic of marriage contained in the text is that marriage is an exclusive relationship, a relationship with God, which God establishes between one man and one woman in the beginning. It's shown that it's one man and one woman. Again, let's not forget the relationship with God here too, but on the basis of our text, we can say that for all times and places, God established marriage as the bond between a man and a woman. For this reason, it says in the text, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quoted the Greek translation of the text, the Septuagint, when he said in Matthew 19, and the two shall become one flesh. So we may take from the Lord that that was the original intention of the text in Genesis 2. And Jesus simply emphasizes that when he quotes from the Septuagint, that Greek translation, that ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, no polygamy, monogamy, no one else intruding in a marriage. God instituted marriage to involve one man and one woman. We mentioned before that nowadays a lot of people don't bother with how marriage was instituted in the first place and that that has resulted in confusion about marriage in the legalization also of same-sex marriage. And so more recently also talk about accepting polygamy and polyandry. One wife with more than one husband and one husband with more than one wife. But our text describes the divine origin of marriage as the joining of one man and one woman. And that can bring also the, that can bring on the question then how could those saints in the Old Testament like King David practice polygamy apparently with God's permission? But it doesn't say anywhere in the Old Testament that God approved of David's polygamy. Something like with divorce. God allowed it to happen in certain instances, but only because of the hardness of their hearts, Jesus says in Matthew 19. And the Lord Jesus adds right away, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, that was not God's design for marriage. We could mention other characteristics of marriage that come to the fore in the text, but I, I think those are the main ones we can think about today, and I hope we keep thinking about marriage on the basis of the Bible then. Not what we think or what we feel is ultimately the important thing here, but how God instituted marriage in the beginning, that's what counts. That's what the Lord Jesus points to, too. And the more we prayerfully work at marriage from a biblical point of view of marriage, with that biblical basis of marriage 
in mind, the more we see then to the beauty of this holy institution. We taste then in it something of the beauty of the relationship between Christ and His bride, His church, as described by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians and shown by the Apostle John in Revelation. The thing is, congregation, we should always keep in mind that marriage is a wonderful relationship instituted by God even before the fall. It was there. Beautiful. Something that we need to value very highly then. That institution which remained even after the fall, which God wants to hold on to, wants us to hold on to. On the other hand, we shouldn't idealize marriage either, and that brings us to the last point, the freedom to marry. And congregation, this, this point, this last point, doesn't flow out of, out of what our text says, but out of what it does not say. It doesn't say that every man will leave his father or mother or every woman be joined to her husband. Marriage is not a commandment for everyone so that out of obedience to God, everybody is obligated to marry. The Lord Jesus speaks about that in Matthew 19. After he had spoken about marriage and divorce, he, he mentions eunuchs. And he means people who cannot or do not marry. He says, some were born that way. We could maybe think of people attracted to the same sex. Could be born that way. Others were made that way by men. And then you might even think of men or women who have been abused, sexually abused, and are afraid of marriage and sexuality or confused about their sexuality. Still others choose to be that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. There are singles who simply want to remain single to be a blessing to God and his people. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you are able, he says you should remain unmarried in order to serve the Lord better. Like Paul himself, he remained unmarried in order that he could serve the Lord as apostle to the Gentiles. He could travel all over, not have to worry about family or anything. And the thing is, marriage is not necessarily for everyone. And the Bible shows that. It isn't so that you're not complete or that you can't fully serve the Lord if you're unmarried, if you stay single. Marriage is not an end in itself. Oh, it can be hard to be single. And the apostle says that if it's too hard, then by all means marry in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7. But if you can choose to remain single for whatever reason, you're able to remain single, then don't think you can't serve the Lord as well as 
as others or be as useful for His kingdom as married people. Not at all. Being single can provide you with as, as many or maybe even more opportunities in certain situations to serve the Lord and others. And we shouldn't look down on singleness as if there's something wrong with people who don't marry, as if they don't accomplish as much as others for the Lord's kingdom. Single members can be a great blessing to a congregation and they shouldn't be pitied but accepted in the church. And that's what I mean with the freedom to marry. Marriage is not a command. It's not a necessity for everybody in God's kingdom. And don't forget, there will be no marriage on the new earth. Marriage is a temporary institution. Marriage is only for this life. When Jesus returns in glory, we'll all receive a glorified and eternal body and there will be no marriage anymore. That's what the Lord Jesus said, Mark 12, 25, to the Sadducees, when the dead rise, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, the institution of marriage will be a thing of the past since there will be no need to reproduce, to fill the earth anymore. All God's elect are then there. And that prospect for the future congregation makes us realize, too, that marriage ain't everything. It's a temporary institution, too. One day, we'll all sit at a great wedding feast, at least if we are believers, if we have that relationship with God in Christ, and there the bridegroom will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And all together, we'll be his bride with all his people. And it'll be an amazing, eternal relationship which will surpass even the best and the most ultimate marriage relationship in this life. Perfect love endless joy in one another. What a future, congregation. What a future. And with that future, we can continue the struggle here with the Lord's help and grace. In His grace and strength, there is hope. Hope for sin sinful people who want to serve their God in Christ. Hope for rocky marriages. Hope for struggling families. Hope for singles. Hope for those who have gone through a divorce. Hope for sinners like me and you.